Welcome back to Gray Matters, the podcast of the Seaboyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Adam White. On March 18th, just a few weeks before recording this, the Gray Center had a, a great event in Washington, D.C. We had the first annual Seaboyd and Gray Lecture on the Administrative State, which was a conversation I had with Justice Gorsuch. And then that conversation was followed by a panel discussion with some new papers on independent agencies in light of the recent Sela and Collins cases. And you can find some of those papers on our website. And in fact, the, the previous episode in the series, this podcast series, was that panel discussion with professors uh, Aditya Bamzai, Aaron Nielsen, and John Harrison. Those papers came from a research roundtable that we hosted uh, online privately in the fall with a, a wide-ranging conversation on agency independence. And there's a fourth paper in the roundtable. It's titled Submerged Independent Agencies. The authors are Brian Feinstein of Wharton at the University of Pennsylvania and Jennifer Noe at the University of Chicago. They were unable to join us for that conversation. And so it's a real pleasure to be joined by one of them, Brian Feinstein, uh, today on the podcast. And again, he's at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania an assistant professor of legal studies, and he writes widely on agency structure and process. Brian, it's such a pleasure to have you here today. Well, thanks so much, Adam. It's really my pleasure to be with you. And, and Professor No is not with us today. She's actually, fair for me to say, she's, she's on leave right now from the University of Chicago. She's serving as a senior advisor in OIRA, where I think her legal career started, actually. So She's doing very, very interesting things in government, but unavailable for law podcasts, I suppose. (laughs) I should also add that uh, Professor Noah and I uh, wrote this paper prior to her government service, and uh, I'll be speaking only for myself uh, during our conversation. Um, You know, I'll play this podcast back for her uh, later and and, and find out where where she would have disagreed, but we'll keep that between us. Um, Brian, it's a fascinating paper, Submerged Independent Agencies. I just wanted to take the opportunity for us to unpack the paper, but maybe the easiest place to start is just with the title. What is a submerged independent agency? Sure. Um, so uh, Professor Noah and I uh, observe this phenomenon where um, agency officials will subdelegate their power uh, in, in a final and binding way uh, to civil servants uh, within uh, their agencies. And um, maybe taking each of these three words uh, in reverse order, uh, these subdelegations uh, are agency-like um, in the sense that uh, they concern uh, final and binding authority that's consequential, uh, that has uh, effects on a regulated parties on third parties outside of the agency. Um, many times the delegatee, the person exercising the subdelegated power, uh, will be the head of a, a, a pretty large uh, bureaucracy, a significant uh, hierarchy. Um, so in that sense, uh, these entities are agencies. Um, they're independent agencies uh, because uh, they're headed by civil servants uh, who enjoy uh, tenure perfection, excuse me, tenure uh, protections. Um, uh, some of these folks are members of the senior executive service uh, who don't have the full panoply of tenure protections that uh, um, kind of conventional civil servants do, but even they um, have uh, pretty uh, substantial restrictions on uh, on their removal. Um, so they're independent in the sense that they're insulated uh, from political principles, just as uh, independent agencies as traditionally understood are. And then finally, these entities are submerged uh, because frankly, um, people don't tend to know much about them. Um, legal scholars uh, haven't paid much attention uh, to um, these subdelegations. Um, neither have 
have courts, uh, and neither have many uh, executive branch officials, uh, including um, the uh, the delegators, the heads of the traditional uh, agencies that are subdelegating these powers. In the course of researching this article, um, we we spoke to uh, several uh, former uh, commissioners and heads of agencies. Uh, we we read newspaper articles uh, where uh, these folks um, were um, uh, showing surprise uh, that um, power had been uh, delegated uh, to their um, to civil servants within their agencies. There's a great quote uh, from um, a Securities and Exchange uh, Commissioner in the paper where he talks about opening up the newspaper and reading about a decision uh, that the SEC had made uh, and uh, having no knowledge of the decision uh, and also uh, no knowledge uh, that a, a subordinate, a civil servant within the agency uh, had the authority to, to make that decision. Um, so uh, these, the, the, the form is submerged in the sense that um, uh, they tend to be uh, under the surface. People tend not to, to, to know or appreciate uh, this uh, way that power is exercised. I have to say, in reading this paper, both when we originally did the roundtable many months ago, and then when the paper was, was the draft was completed, uh, I was really stunned, surprised, entertained sometimes by the examples, um, I, so many of which I had never heard of. Early on in the paper, uh, you, you identify an, an officer, or an, not an officer, actually, that's an important distinction, but um, uh, an example of within the Department of Transportation's National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Uh, within this, ag- this agency, NHTSA was an office of the, the Associate Administrator for Rulemaking, uh, a, a person at NHTSA with, with significant authority to, to issue rules, sometimes with oversight from the NHTSA administrator, but still with a lot of independent discretion with this associate administrator. And as you point out, you emphasize in the draft, this associate administrator for rulemaking is, again, a tenure-protected civil servant. And that relationship between the politically appointed and accountable officers at the top of the agency and, and the civil servants who are are uh, vested with this subdelegated discretion, it's a very interesting dynamic between them. But before we get into that too far, could you maybe just unpack the point about subdelegation a little bit more? Um, this is clear. It's not delegation. We we often talk about Congress delegating powers to an agency. This These are subdelegated within an agency. And as you said, when you when you teed it up, you said in a legally binding way. What are these subdelegations? Yes, sure. So in any large organization, um, power uh, devolves from the, the top on down. Um, uh, so um, for instance, with administrative agencies, uh, typically when Congress passes a law, uh, it will uh, delegate uh, authority to undertake some action, uh, typically to the secretary or, or to the commission or, or the top level uh, person or group uh, with the agency. Um, in the ordinary course, uh, um, naturally, that top level person uh, isn't making the decision completely on their own. So NHTSA's administrator, uh, or rather the Department of Transportation secretary, for instance, isn't deciding uh, him or herself on uh, what the uh, the fuel economy standard should be. They're, they're taking advice uh, from from uh, civil servants and others. Uh, that's kind of the ordinary course. You can consider it almost the schoolhouse rock account of how um, uh, regulatory decisions are made. Um, what we've identified is something a little bit different. Uh, that's where as a formal matter, uh, the decision, rather the, the authority to make a final decision uh, is devolved, is granted from the person whom Congress identified from say the Secretary of Transportation uh, down the chain. Uh, first to the uh, administrator of the National Highway Transportation uh, Traffic uh, Safety Administration, uh, and then later on uh, to this associate administrator of NHTSA, the associate administrator for rulemaking, um, who's a civil servant. Uh, it's the delegation happens um, uh, uh, with some degree of formality. Uh, uh, Jennifer and I looked at subdelegations that are published in the Federal Register. There are other formats that these delegations 
take. Uh, we may be looking at the tip of the iceberg here, um, but we're looking at ones that are published in the Federal Register. Um, so they have a degree of formality that way. Um, uh, many times uh, the, the language in the Federal Register will say that um, the uh, delegatee uh, can exercise uh, unreviewable or, or final authority, um, even where uh, that language is absent. Uh, there's something called the Accardi Doctrine in, in administrative law, um, which uh, basically uh, means that courts have to be bound to follow their procedures. Um, so if there's been a subdelegation to this NHTSA Associate Administrator for Rulemaking, uh, that person promulgates a certain fuel economy standard. Um, and then later on, someone up the chain, the Secretary of Transportation or NHTSA's Administrator, uh, decides to, to change that uh, standard. Um, an affected party could sue and say, wait a minute, um, you know, Department of Transportation, you didn't follow uh, the procedure that you promulgated through the Federal Register to have the Associate Administrator make this decision. Um, uh, the court would find for that party um, and uh, and NHTSA would be bound uh, to follow um, uh, its procedure for subdelegating this, this authority uh, that it published in the Federal Register. So it's legally binding in that sense. Uh, the NHTSA Associate Administrator for Rulemaking is a, is, a, is a fun example, but as you sort of alluded to just a moment ago, there are a lot of examples. You and, and Professor No built up a, a pretty extensive data set based on uh, searches through the, the, I guess it was the Code of Federal Regulations. Um, your bottom line, as I, I see here on page 23, you have 3,358 subdelegations of discretionary, discretionary governmental authority. Could you maybe ex- explain just a little bit the, this data set, how you went about looking for these subdelegations? And and and, and you're, you're, both of the, you and Professor Noah are very modest in your claims here in the paper, right? You understand that searches for these kinds of subdelegations are tricky. That's why I think yours is the, the first of its kind. And you, 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 you're very candid that you're making some judgment calls and and the the subset the set might be bigger um, we don't know but how did you arrive upon these 3358 subdelegations well our first step was to search the federal register um, for uh, phrases like uh, like delegate or delegation uh, we found that that did capture uh, the full set of subdelegations because helpfully some agencies will list all of their subdelegations in one uh, subpart of uh, of the CFR uh, and we noticed that every Thing that we found uh, using those search terms in the Federal Register um, mapped on to what was in those CFR subparts. Uh, so uh, once we had um, uh, found uh, this, this uh, corpus of uh, Federal Register entries beginning in 1979 uh, through uh, essentially the present uh, that used one of these terms, um, we uh, looked at the portion of the Federal Register entry that, um, that uh, amended the CFR um, and uh, essentially just copied that text into a da- database. Uh, the problem we encountered, though, was so many of these subdelegations seemed uh, ministerial uh, in effect, kind of the, the bureaucratic equivalent of you have authority to turn on the coffee machine in the morning. Uh, things that were clerical or, or didn't really seem like they would uh, be, be weighty enough uh, to um, deserve this label of submerged independent agencies. So what we did was um, we adopted a functional definition of what qualifies as agency-like status. And that's basically uh, some decision, um, um, rather the exercise of discretion in some way that's going to have some sort of binding effect on an extra agency actor. Uh, we decided to hand code uh, 1,200 of the subdelegations that we found um, using that. We initially found um, uh, approximately 6,000 of these subdelegations. We um, uh, hand coded about 1,200 um, to decide whether they met this definition of the exercise of discretionary government authority affecting um, extra agency actors. Um, and then for the remaining, uh, we used uh, a machine learning classification algorithm some 
you can think of it as, as an, an AI algorithm uh, to determine whether the remaining um, subdelegations that we identified uh, uh, also um, involve the exercise of discretionary authority. Uh, and from that, we, we arrived at the number you mentioned a moment ago, uh, 3,358 uh, subdelegations uh, of discretionary government authority. Uh, among those, um, almost 1,600 were appointee to civil servant uh, subdelegations. So that's a majority of them. Um, and I do want to mention, uh, as you, and I appreciate you mentioned this a moment ago, um, that uh, what, that there are limitations to this work. And, and one of the most important ones is we're only looking at those subdelegations that are captured in the federal register. Uh, we know that there are some agencies like EPA that publish their subdelegations in different ways. So EPA has this internal manual. Um, ultimately, if you want to expand the concept even further, you know, perhaps uh, if NHTSA calls up, if NHTSA's administrator calls up uh, the associate administrator and just says on the phone, you know, you've been subdelegated this power. Uh, that's obviously not something we're capturing. Uh, so in a sense, this is a tip, the tip of the iceberg. But we do think it's important uh, to isolate just those subdelegations that were published in the Federal Register because they are legally binding based on this uh, Cardi doctrine that I mentioned a moment ago. And, and the paper helpfully breaks down, uh, especially helpful, you have a graphic with arrows, uh, which is for, for slow readers like me, great. Um, but you, you break it down, uh, delegate subdelegations from one political appointee to another political appointee, subdelegations from one civil servant to another civil servant. You find one subdelegation that, if you were thinking about it in terms of a org chart, might almost look like an upward subdelegation because it's one civil from a civil servant to a political appointee. But as, as you noted just a little bit ago, what's I think particularly fascinating um, are the ones from a political appointee to a civil servant. So 1,596 of your subdelegations uh, are from the political appointee to the civil servant. And much of your paper focuses on the interesting dynamics within that particular kind of subdelegation, because it's, as you've defined this as, as, as discretion, you know, exercises of discretion by the, by the person who's been delegated authority. And anytime you have a, a civil servant who's exercising any significant discretion on behalf of the, the agency with reduced oversight uh, or control from the political appointees at the top of the agency, needless to say, there are interesting either constitutional or just policy, structural questions, questions of any sort about the, the consequences of that. But you you and, and Professor No also think through the, the, the reasons why such a subdelegation would occur. Um, so there's a, I just put a lot out there, but could you maybe unpack a little bit the relationship, uh, the, these relationships between the political appointees and civil servants and, and what you saw in why it is that, that a, a political appointee might subdelegate such significant authority down to a civil servant over whom he or she wouldn't have you know, unfettered power? It is puzzling. Uh, within the um, administrative law literature, there's this notion of an internal separation of powers, uh, which sees civil servants and appointees as rivals or competitors. Uh, and uh, our finding, I think, flies in the face of that conventional wisdom. Uh, why would um, why would uh, an appointee who thinks of civil servants as rivalrous uh, deliberately empower them uh, in this way? And not only does the scholarly literature um, have that understanding, but it's there, there's kind of a, a popular view uh, that um, you know, think of the, the, the so-called deep state or the resistance um, as uh, political appointees and uh, civil servants being at loggerheads. Um, so why do they do that? And uh, we don't have a firm conclusion, but I, I would like to offer some thoughts. Uh, one is that it can motivate uh, effort and uh, the acquisition of expertise. Um, so if you tell somebody, if you empower somebody with final decision-making authority, uh, that'll promote them uh, to uh, invest in, in expertise. Uh, if, if they know that they can be reversed, they don't have the same incentive uh, to uh, really get informed on the issue uh, and 
um, and make a decision that way. This is, uh, I'm alluding to um, a long and complex, uh, um, rather a, a complex uh, set of um, economic studies regarding principal agent models. When would a principal empower an agent? You know, many times it's to uh, to promote um, expertise or to promote um, uh, the investment um, of time and resources. Uh, so that, that's one possibility. Uh, another is that it's a form of compensation. Um, the civil service uh, does not pay as well as the private sector in some areas. Um, so uh, lawyers uh, in particular, or economists uh, m- many times could make more money in private sector positions than in civil service careers. Uh, but if you could think of um, this uh, policymaking discretion, this sort of power, uh, to put it bluntly, as a form of compensation, um, it, it could be used to attract and, and ret- retain um, a high quality workforce. Uh, those are the more benign explanations. Um, another explanation is that this is a way for uh, current appointees to entrench um, their views uh, and not have them reversed by future appointees. Um, so uh, if you're the NHTSA administrator, uh, you know that the associate administrator uh, shares your views. You're not sure if the next NHTSA administrator, the next person in your position will share your views. Uh, it can make sense uh, to subdelegate uh, to a friendly civil servant uh, rather than keep the power yourself, uh, knowing that your successor might not share your views. And in fact, we do find um, a statistically significant increase in subdelegations in what we call the midnight period. So in the three months prior to a presidential transition, uh, appointees tend to subdelegate powers a lot more than they do uh, at other times. And that's at least suggestive um, that some of this entrenchment uh, is going on. Um, so, so I think those are three possibilities. Uh, there are others as well, but those come to mind. That last one was particularly interesting to me. I was going to mention if you had these midnight subdelegations. Um, obviously, administrative lawyers are familiar with midnight regulations. Um, and there's, you know, more and more interesting work being done on presidential transitions. Um, I think, isn't it Professors Revez and, and Bethany Knoll have a new paper out on presidential transitions, I think. Um, I might be I might be misremembering the authors, but there's a lot of it, so many interesting things out there now. But this too, this idea of midnight subdelegations, which again, as you said, can, can entrench a policy uh, from one administration to the next, at least until the time it takes for the next administration to rescind the subdelegation through the, the same channel by which it was it was originally made in the first place. I thought that was fascinating. Not to put you on the spot, but has there been much other work on midnight subdelegations or was this, uh, were, were, were you and Professor No sort of charting new territory in, 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 in working through this this um, this uh, this issue? I know you, I don't expect for you to do like an exhaustive literature review on the spot, but but do you remember is it, this is was totally off of my radar at least until I read it in your paper. I, it was off of our radar as well. And um, although I guess I can't speak definitively for what I don't know, uh, we, we looked pretty um, carefully and uh, we do think that we're the first uh, people to make this observation. Um, it's certainly in line with, as you mentioned, there's been work on, on midnight regulations. Uh, there's um, Nina Mendelssohn has worked on on uh, burrowing uh, people yeah. who are in appointee positions uh, going into uh, civil service positions or rather the positions being reclassified as civil service positions in the midnight period. Yeah. Um, there's also uh, um, more uh, more rules are submitted, more economically significant rules are submitted for OIRA review in the midnight period for that transition. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's certainly uh, our observation is a piece with these other strategies that outgoing administrations take. Um, but I believe we're the first to observe that um, these uh, midnight subdelegations are one part of that strategy. Well, again, first and foremost, the, the great value of this paper is just in identifying this issue, uh, the, this category of subdelegations and the officers. Or, hold on, I got to restate it now. Every time I say officer, I have to put up an asterisk. Try one more time. So again, the, the great value of this paper, first and foremost, is just in identifying 
identifying these subdelegations, identifying the trends and thinking through, uh, again, what you describe as submerged independent agencies within agencies. But after I, highlighting the, this broad category of agency subdelegations, it does raise some natural questions about the, hold on a second, third time's a charm, which was one more time, and I'm not going to meander so much. So again, first and foremost, son of a gun. <laughs> Last time. Sorry to, yeah, no, no, don't worry, my fault. My fault. I, I was on a roll for a while. Um, so again, the great value of this paper, first and foremost, is just in identifying this issue of submerged independent agencies, these subdelegations, some of the themes of, of delegations from politically appointed officers to civil servants uh, within the agencies. But of course, once we start thinking about civil servants wielding significant discretion, there are natural questions raised about the appointment of these officers and, and the lack of, of at-will removability of these officers. Because of course, those agency, those issues are surrounding agencies so much now in light of the Lucia decision about the appointments clause and ALJs, uh, the recent removal cases, Sela and Collins. Uh, and I should mention ALJs again is an issue that my co-director here at the Gray Center, Professor uh, Mascot, is focused on so much. Brian, you and Jennifer don't, don't attempt to exhaustively pursue the constitutional issues. Again, that's not the point of the paper, but the issues are pretty salient. And, and so you, you walk through them a little bit, just spotting some of the questions that might be asked in constitutional terms about these subdelegations. You begin in the paper with the appointments clause, and then you move to removal. Maybe that's the natural way to approach it here in, in this conversation. What are some of the appointments clause issues that you see might be floating around or might be reasonably asked about civil servants who have these, these this discretionary power under these subdelegations? Sure. So um, under the appointments clause, um, rather under the Supreme Court's appointments clause uh, jurisprudence, um, constitutional officers are defined as those that exercise significant authority pursuant to the laws of the United States. And those folks, if they're principal officers, uh, need to be uh, nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate. Um, if they're inferior officers, uh, need to be uh, appointed by the president, a head of department or a court of law. Um, now, it does seem uh, now here, I should emphasize once again, that I'm, I'm only speaking for myself, that at least some of these um, subdelegations do involve significant authority. We spoke a moment ago about uh, NHTSA's associate administrator for rulemaking, um, having uh, decision-making authority over a wide variety of standards that seem squarely within NHTSA's wheelhouse, um, fuel economy standards, uh, safety standards, anti-theft prevention standards. Um, do those rise to the level of significant authority? It's going to be, I think, a, um, a case-specific inquiry, um, but I I think an argument uh, could be made. Um, and uh, in uh, in Lucia, um, so kind of the first of the recent appointment clause cases, uh, the court said that their inquiry is going to focus on the extent to which um, the power that an individual wields, um, rather the extent of the power that an individual wields in carrying out his assigned uh, functions. Um, the, the court didn't clarify that any further, uh, but the government's briefs in that case uh, proposed a, a criterion um, that that uh, the individual would be um, classified as exercising uh, significant authority if he or she has uh, the power to bind the government or third parties on significant matters. And, and that language is uh, very closely tracks the language they, that we use uh, to isolate agency authority. It's the party, uh, rather the power to bind the government or third parties on significant matters. Yeah. Um, I don't know if our definition of significant uh, is going to be the same as the Supreme Court's, and it, it may differ, it will differ case by case. But I think that this at least raises uh, the possibility that many of these subdelegations in our data set uh, are going to be constitutionally significant and, and raise these appointments clause uh, issues. Um, the Arthrex case went 
even further. Uh, so um, uh, this case clarified uh, that um, what to distinguish between a, an inferior officer uh, and a principal officer with the latter needing to be um, nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate, um, that's going to um, call for an appraisal of how much power uh, the officer exercises that's free from control by a supervisor. Um, again, this is going to be a case-specific uh, sort of inquiry, um, and courts uh, are going to, to assess uh, whether the individual's work is directed or supervised at any level by the principal officer. Um, now, reading that literally, um, it, it does seem that many of the uh, subdelegations in our data set are going to be headed or would be, um, the conclusion would be that they're headed by a principal officer uh, and someone who um, is, in this case, not presidentially appointed and Senate confirmed, uh, thus calling uh, the constitutionality of some of these subdelegations uh, into question. Uh, these subdelegations in many times uh, will say uh, that the delegator, rather the delegatee, the person that's delegated the power, um, has final decision-making authority and that authority cannot be reviewed. Um, it, that seems uh, squarely to be uh, power that's being exercised free from control by a supervisor, as the Arthrex Court uh, puts it. Um, uh, so I, I do think uh, the questions are raised. Uh, you're right, Adam, that we don't come to definitive conclusions. Um, I, I do wonder, I do think that uh, ex post ratification uh, could provide a solution. Um, so uh, there was a, the case, uh, I, I love this case name, uh, Moose Juice, uh, several years ago in the D.C. Circuit. <laughs> um, basically, uh, the um, so Congress passes the Tobacco Control Act several years ago. It authorizes the HHS secretary to decide uh, whether something qualifies as um, a tobacco product that can be regulated. The, the HHS secretary uh, subdelegates that power to the FDA commissioner, and then the FDA commissioner subdelegates that power to a civil servant. Um, so uh, Moose Juice, which is uh, an e-cigarette uh, manufacturer, um, or rather I should back up um, and uh, and mention that um, this civil servant who has subdelegated the power uh, determines that e-cigarettes uh, qualify uh, under the Tobacco Control Act and can be regulated um, by the FDA. Uh, Moose Juice uh, sues um, uh, and, and challenges uh, the, the constitutionality of that decision. Um, uh, that their argument is that the decision needs to be made by a, uh, a principal officer. Um, before the case was resolved, though, um, the secretary of HHS uh, ratified um, the subordinate's decision, ratified the uh, subdelegate's decision, um, and uh, therefore mooted the case. Uh, and, and the D.C. Circuit found that that was sufficient. They didn't reach the issue of constitutionality uh, because somebody who was a principal officer uh, ratified uh, the, the, um, the subdelegate's uh, decision. Um, so as a practical matter, uh, is is a finding, or rather is my um, um, my doubts about whether uh, these subdelegations are constitutional, whether these folks are constitutionally appointed, going to matter? Maybe not, because as suits are brought, um, somebody who is a principal officer uh, can uh, can ratify the decisions ex post, and at least by the Moose Juice uh, Court, um, that's sufficient. Yeah, and it must be said that the, the headline in the Washington Post that day was Moose Juice Moot Suit. Um, um, but uh, uh, so similar similar issues on removal. Then um, would you say um, I mean, that's 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 an unfair way of putting the question. Um, so so obviously the appointments clause.
clause uh, and the Supreme Court's doctrine about the appointments clause is not entirely the same as the court's approach to removal. But of course, there is some commonalities of most famously in Morrison v. Olson. Um, but but after in your paper, after you touch on the, the appointments clause issues, you, you do spend a little bit of time on some of the possible removal issues um, raised by these subdelegations to, to, non, to non-politically appointed civil servants. Yes, so uh, you're right that the uh, removal cases raise similar issues as the appointments cases do. Um, fortunately, I think there are uh, solutions there as well, uh, solutions to the, the constitutional uh, problems uh, with, with removal here. Um, so in uh, SELA law, uh, um, uh, the basic holding there was uh, this agency um, with a, a unique set of features, uh, one of those features being um, headed by uh, a single uh, appointee that was removable uh, only for cause. Uh, the court found that scheme to be unconstitutional. Um, although there the court highlighted uh, first the novelty of the scheme um, and uh, secondly that the CFPB, the agency at issue, um, exercises significant administrative and enforcement authority. Um, I think these subdelegations can be distinguished on both of those fronts. Um, so first, there's nothing novel about this. Um, there, this is uh, routine. Uh, as you mentioned, we found thousands of these subdelegations across a wide range of agencies. Uh, and second, um, although these uh, authorities that are being subdelegated are important, uh, they don't rise to the level of significance uh, of uh, the, the broad set of statutes that the CFPB um, uh, uh, had authority to enforce. Um, later, the Collins case complicates things uh, a little bit more. Um, so there, the court uh, walked back uh, the notion that the significance of the authority matters and also that the novelty matters. They, they didn't disavow that, um, but the court in Collins uh, said that the constitutional analysis regarding removal uh, doesn't hinge on the nature and breadth of an agency's authority. Taking that statement literally, uh, it does seem like um, uh, if, it, if it truly doesn't hinge on the uh, the breadth of the authority, uh, some of these subdelegations, even ones that are relatively minor, uh, could um, uh, could be put on the chopping block. Um, I, I don't know uh, how the Supreme Court is going to um, uh, take that statement in the future, but I think it is an open question. Um, the other removal question is this notion of uh, double or rather dual for cause removal. Um, so uh, in some of these agencies, in, in, in this what you can call traditional independent agencies, so take um, uh, take um, the FCC, um, where uh, the FCC is subdelegate, subdelegating power uh, to uh, civil servants, you have a situation where there's two layers of, of removal protection. Uh, first, the commissioners have for-cause removal protection, and second, the civil servants have a broad array of merit protections, which are, are functionally uh, equivalent. Um, so uh, the free enterprise uh, fund case um, uh, about uh, 12 years ago. Uh, in that case, uh, the Supreme Court held uh, that those sorts of uh, for-cause removal restrictions uh, are unconstitutional. Um, the, uh, the majority opinion expressly said that uh, the logic doesn't apply to the senior executive service or the civil service writ large. Um, uh, nevertheless, um, it doesn't seem what the limiting principle should be. It doesn't seem why, uh, aside from that assurance, uh, logically, it, it doesn't seem why uh, that, that shouldn't apply to civil servants as well. And indeed, in dissent in the free enterprise case, uh, Justice Breyer pointed out um, that the majority's logic uh, would apply uh, or, sh- or seemingly should apply no differently to, to civil servants uh, as it would to um, members of this board that was uh, nested within the Securities and Exchange uh, Commission. Um, now, uh, 
there again, uh, I think there's a, a clear constitutional issue. Um, th- there could be reforms. I guess the most obvious one uh, would be to to write these subdelegations uh, slightly differently, uh, to not um, have the uh, the authority be completely binding, uh, to have it be subject to review, um, perhaps even periodically to present the delegator, the, the, the person who is um, uh, the officer, um, uh, review and sign off on all of the uh, decisions that have been made pursuant to this delegated authority. So I don't think this would be fatal to uh, the administrative state. Um, but but I do think there are uh, potential uh, constitutional um, questions on the horizon. As I was thinking through this part of the paper and the earlier discussion about midnight subdelegations, you know, I was sort of thinking through the, the, the strategy on both sides about this. When, when we think about, and I, this is on the question of what would the remedy be for a, a subdelegation that raises real constitutional issues, either for purposes of the appointments clause or, or on removal. You know, when we're talking about those issues in a statute, right, that created the office, um, that's different, right? Because it's, it's the same statute or the same statutory structure that both creates the office and delegates the power, right? And so in a case like uh, seal of law, for example, um, the court looks at this and they have to grapple with what's the right remedy. And normally the right remedy is, well, we, we eliminate the independence of the of this officer. We don't get rid of the CFPB altogether. We don't um, limit its, the, the office's um, substantive powers. Rather, the thing we change is the removal protection. Um, but it's a little different in this context of subdelegation because the statutes are creating the offices, including the civil service protections. And it's the executive, uh, the agency's own action that's subdelegating the powers that give rise to the, the constitutional issue, right? The, 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 the this, this lower office, the civil, not again, not an office, the civil servant has their protections by, through, through the statutory creation of these jobs and the, and the civil service protections. And it's only once the agency itself or an officer within the agency subdelegates these powers that suddenly the constitutional question emerges. Um, so if these cases were ever litigated, the, 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 it would seem to me um, the, 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 probably the intuitive remedy would be on the subdelegate, would be to end the subdelegation rather than to modify the office. But, but if you could follow Follow me one step. Well, what do you think? I agree completely. That, that's a, an important point to make. Uh, yeah, and there's in uh, historically in the courts uh, separation of powers uh, jurisprudence uh, they they do tend to um, uh, to favor remedies uh, that are um, uh, I guess uh, using a scalpel uh, rather than a hatchet. Uh, yeah. And, and, and yeah, what you just uh, laid out seems like the, the most obvious remedy would be to to um, uh, to, to reverse or to revoke the subdelegation uh, rather than to challenge say, civil service protections. Uh, that's yeah. an important point. So, so thinking through, again, sort of the, strateg- the, the strategery, so to speak, here, um, the issue with midnight subdelegations, one of the possible issues with them is that a, an outgoing administration might strategically subdelegate through a rulemaking in order to entrench the subdelegation and make it a little harder for the next administration to, to undo the subdelegation. I could see an incoming administration looking at this and saying the subdelegation itself, in our opinion, has created a constitutional issue and therefore, I can't uh, enforce the regulation. Um, I, 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 my guess is if this issue becomes more prevalent uh, or politically significant, uh, an energetic administration coming into office might try to short, short shortcut the undoing process by claiming a constitutional issue, either because there is one there or because they want to see one there, um, and then just announce that they won't enforce the rule, uh, the, the subdelegation, because of the constitutional issue. I can't remember how that that plays into a Cardi. We saw it a little bit in in both the beginning 
the Trump administration and the Biden administration where where um, agencies would would claim that there was a, a legal infirmity in a policy or rule that they inherited and therefore they just weren't going to enforce it. And the courts sometimes looked as often looked askance at that approach. But here I, I'm just thinking out loud and I'm not, this is not even a question. It's just an observation. So feel free to not follow me on this tangent. But I, I if I could see a, an incoming administration sort of leverage the possibility of a constitutional problem as a way to shortcut the task of undoing the subdelegation. That's I think that's brilliant and, and Machiavellian and fascinating. Uh, I, I agree that's a possibility. Um, you saw, I think you're right to mention that both the Trump and Biden administration um, have hinted at using similar sorts of strategies. I think it, particularly in the waning days of the Trump administration with um, Secretary Azar uh, at HHS um, writing this memo, uh, basically disavowing uh, all subdelegations. Uh, also with the Trump administration um, uh, proposing this, this Schedule F. Um, uh, it, it does seem like maybe the natural next step, um, if um, um, a similar the next time a similar administration comes to power, um, you know, would be uh, to to use these uh, constitutional infirmities uh, as a way of, um, of, uh, of of negating or not enforcing decisions that are made by these delegates. Uh, I think that's uh, a terrific point. Well, if it, you, you had me at you had me at brilliant and Machiavellian, so we'll leave it at that. Um, uh, and if this ever these things ever come to pass, hey, it's another episode of the podcast. But um, but as, as we wind this one down, um, I think I, I hope we've done justice to the paper. Is there anything we left on the table that um, that we should have gotten in here? No, I think that really uh, covers the waterfront. And thanks so much, Adam. This is really a pleasure. No, it's a pleasure uh, to have you here. And again, we, we were so happy to to get to do the workshop on the paper. And and listeners can now find the paper um, on the homepage of our website and also on the working papers list. But on the homepage in the bottom right corner, you'll find this paper along with two of the other papers from the same roundtable on agency independence, and another paper from a different roundtable by Professor Daniel Crane looking at the FTC's uh, independence in light of um, the recent Supreme Court cases. So there's a lot there. But one last thing I just wanted to point out for listeners that uh, this is not uh, Brian's first time to the Gray Center. Uh, a couple of years earlier, uh, or a year earlier at least, he co-wrote a paper with Professor Abby Wood. Um, the paper was titled Divided Agencies, again, looking at some of the dynamics within agencies. This paper is coming out in, in the Southern California Law Review. It, that is also that paper is also in draft form on our website. Again, it's called Divided Agencies. Uh, and when Brian came to Washington to speak on a panel to discuss the paper, uh, that panel is itself an episode of this podcast back in October. So, folks, if you, if you haven't haven't heard enough uh, from from Brian, there's there's still more out there. Um, but Brian, thanks again for joining us on this episode. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thanks, Adam. And one last thing, listeners, uh, you may if you haven't noticed, the Gray Center is busier than ever. Uh, Thanks to all the programs that Jennifer Mascott is doing here, some that I'm doing, and just the growth of the center in general. So if you want to stay in touch or stay up to date with what we're doing, there's a few ways. One is subscribe to the podcast. But again, if you're hearing this, hopefully you already have subscribed to it. Subscribe to our email newsletter. You can get that on the website. And follow us on Twitter, where, where only sensible conversations happen, of course, on Twitter. But we're at at, uh, at Adlaw Center. So that's where you can find us there. And we'll look forward to the next episode of Gray Matters. 